Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Rush Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure today of welcoming uh, Dr. Jay Barton Scott to the podcast. He is a an associate professor at the University of Toronto. He's appointed both to the Department of Historical Studies at uh, at uh, UTM as well as the Department uh, for the Study of Religion at uh, the St. George campus. Uh, if that's TMI about University of Toronto, uh, it's just my alma mater, so I feel the need to say these things. Anyhow, um, we'll be speaking about a brand new um, 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 University of Chicago Press publication, Slandering the Sacred, Blasphemy Law and Religion and Religious Affect in Colonial India. Uh, Bart, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, uh, Raj. And I would add, it's in addition to being University of Chicago, the book is also out like last week with Permanent Black uh, in Delhi with a slightly different subtitle, Blasphemy Law and the Shaping of Indian Secularism. Fantastic, which means it will reach a uh, more, uh, a larger audience, which means there'll be even more people interested in, in what we're about to discuss. That's fantastic. And unlike um, the vast majority of my guests, we have had the pleasure, at least on my part, of meeting in person. Um, but ironically, although I presented at UPS, um, some some um, some some alumni to come back and talk about their interesting careers beyond the professoriate. Although I presented at a, a presentation a couple of weeks ago or last month in Toronto, it was actually on Zoom. <laughs> but thank you very much for the invite. That was that was good fun. Thank you. It was a great panel. Yeah, I, I loved hearing everybody's stories, uh, and Zoom allowed us to bring in people who wouldn't have been able to bring in otherwise. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, great. So, uh, your book is fascinating. Uh, you probably already know that, or at least it was. Uh, uh, you know, it fascinated you for for multiple years. This topic, anyhow. Um, but I have to say, off off the bat, that um, I have come across some books that are accessible. Yours is quite accessible. But you write as a storyteller. It's you. You. I don't know if that is something that you honed uh, for the book. If that was always the case, but typically, I, as people can probably infer by the rate of production on the podcast and the fact that I, you know, teach and do my own scholarship, I, I read fairly quickly. But when I read, it's typically derivation of information. I mean, scholarly reading. But every once in a while, I'll come across a monograph such as yours where, you know, the amount of time I set aside is not enough because it's more of a leisurely read where you're telling a story with the sentences, with the paragraphs, with the grander story. So I have to ask you about that. Tell me a little bit about that feature of your writing, if you don't mind. Is that something innate to you? Is it sort of something you do consciously? Well, I guess first, thank you for the, I mean, writing is important to me. So I appreciate your noticing that I put a lot of care into the writing. Uh, it is, yeah, it's something that it takes a lot of work. I mean, I think that Books are important. Books consist of words and writing. And if we are pouring ourselves into the writing, what are we doing uh, is sort of my feeling. And I like writing that has some kick to it. I like writing that has a strong narrative propulsion to it. Uh, And that's the kind of writing I try to make. Uh, It takes a gazillion drafts to do. Uh, because you have to first figure out what your ideas are and get the all, get all the research built in there, and then just revise, revise, revise until it flows smoothly. Well, that's that's the and and this is not a piece I normally comment on. I mean, there there have been a number of accessible books and and, and loose writers without question, but you know when I read academic material, I read it for the information. It's typically written for the information, for structure, for an argument, for evidence, for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I happen to what do I study? I study narrative. 
uh, what do I do when I'm not studying narrative? I, I teach through story. I tell story. I mean, narrative is so important. And when you have that narrative quality to the writing, you you actually you you don't want to just skim through it. You actually the narrative takes you on the journey, right? So in with that quality, it's really important, I think, for teaching. Um, but it's it's also a joy for academic work. So it's it's great that you spend that energy. It comes across at least to me, and I imagine for those. Actually, no, I think it was a comment. If I if I recall correctly. One of the reviewers um, commented on sort of, um, I think uh, she or he quipped that it was, um, you, you sort of, um, you know, you're writing about, <laughs> you know, colonial uh, Indian penal law. You've somehow written a page turner. <laughs> no small feat. There you are. Yeah, Catherine Lemons at McGill Uni uh, University, an anthropologist of Islam. Bless her. She wrote like the best ad copy. It's a page turner about a penal code. <laughs> yes, it is scholarly. Yeah, indeed, it's hilarious. Um, so, how did you become interested in this topic? What's sort of the genesis of this interest or this or this book kernel? Yeah, so the book is a history of Section Two Ninety Five A of the Indian Penal Code, uh, which makes it a crime to outrage the religious feelings of any class of person. It's a law that anybody who follows the news and in contemporary India knows well. It seems like every week uh, there's some kind of allegation that somebody has wounded religious feelings, and the law is now most often used, it seems, um, to protect Hinduism from alleged offense. Uh, I, like many. North American-based scholars of Hinduism uh, had long been aware of this law. Um, it has shadowed scholarship on Hinduism uh, since the 1990s, and tons of scholars have run afoul of it. Uh, most famously, uh, perhaps, Wendy Doniger with her 2014 book, uh, The Hindus and Alternative History, uh, which uh, quite stupendously ran afoul of this law. So, I mean, I, for years, had been working on topics in and around modern Hinduism and had been writing under the shadow of just this paranoia of like, oh God, will a thing I write run afoul of section 295A? Will I be dragged to court or have my my things pulped? Which never happened uh, because most scholarly writing doesn't get read that much in you know, scholarly writing. But, and so I decided that for this project, I was going to lean into the paranoia and in fact, write about the thing that was making me paranoid, uh, which is this law and wanted to give give an account of it. And that here, here we are. Well, this is this is the path to scholarly self actualization facing your fear. So how 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 side savvy of you? Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so so thank you for laying the foundation of the, the, the this 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 law and some of its implications and clearly um, uh, clearly what a slippery slope it might be to run afoul of it, as you say. Um, what what would you say? What would you hope would be the primary overarching takeaway or subset of takeaways for this book. What does this book hope to accomplish or show, demonstrate? Ah, this, uh, this is the hard question. I mean, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, because it's, it's textured. It's textured in this case. Everything I write ends up having multiple arguments, and so it's hard to extract one. But I mean, I guess in some ways the main argument uh, is to say that Section 295A is easy to criticize. Uh, many on the left and other 
political positions in India would love to be rid of the thing. It's places that chill on free speech about religion. I mean, certainly I and other scholars, you know, sort of hate this law because it really does place a chill on free speech and scholarship about religion. But the more I looked into the history of the law, the more I saw that it uh, poses, it's just represents a set of problems that have no easy solution. We're still living with this set of problems now. Uh, how is one, how is a modern state, how is a modern society meant to regulate or proscribe uh, injurious speech. Uh, this is a set of questions that's implied in things like trigger warnings, uh, regulations about hate speech and cancel culture. Uh, we as a society are even now obsessed with questions of injurious speech. And those the, those are much the same set of questions that 295A was trying to resolve when it was put on the books way back in 1927, nearly 100 years ago. Um, and yeah, so uh, how, how, what, it's a set of questions that are still with us. And to me, these are a bottom a set of questions about the history of secularism. This is one of, uh, whether or not it's evident to the author of the book, it's it's more often than evident to myself in terms of how to pan out and why this is relevant. In this particular case, you do that brilliantly in the book and you you bring in examples, whether it's, you know, uh, Rushdie or uh, Madonna or whomever, um, uh, just to show that this is, uh, it's important to understand the particular sociocultural contours of a phenomenon that's being studied, but then it's not such that humans aren't humans on some level, and problems aren't pervasive cross culturally. And this 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 may be a variation or an iteration or, or an exemplification or a corollary, at very least, of something that is experienced currently or in in your particular culture. Now, given that you make the parallel so clear in your work, do you feel that, uh, is it the case that understanding this tension in modern times will illumine uh, uh, Section 295A and, and and this historical juncture, or is it vice versa? Uh, I mean, I think it's both. I think in many ways, we're still in the same broad conjuncture of 1927, where the, how to frame injurious speech comes, that question becomes visible from within liberalism uh, as political a set of political philosophies that place particular emphasis on free speech uh and th those that was the same set of problems that were there in the, in the 1920s it's the same set of problems we have today so I actually the moment is broadly speaking shared although there are you know key shifts between the 1920s and today not least shifts in media uh you know, we're now in the world that the digital obviously the world that I was investigating in late 19th and early 20th century India is the world of print media um when there were all like gazillions of cheaply printed tracts pamphlets newspapers circulating everywhere on um, the, the kinds of slanders that percolated at the time were so caught up with the tactile material technology of print what does your uh, work illumine or have to say about um, uh, this notion of secularism? What does that fit into your work? So secularism is now a much contested concept in the scholarship. Um, once upon a time, scholars tended to presume something like a secularization narrative where once upon a time religion you know was sort of in, uh, entangled with all things and then gradually it was subtracted and now there's less of religion than there used to be uh, that kind of narrative is 
utterly untenable on both empirical as well as conceptual grounds. And uh, scholars have now come to understand, as you know, and many of your listeners probably also know, that religion is a modern concept that emerges somewhere around the 17th century and really emerges in tandem with what we understand to be secularism. Uh, Talal Assad, the anthropologist, has described religious like Siamese twin. Siamese twins or Hawaiian twins. I mean Siamese twins is such like a weirdly colonial metaphor. I've referred to, you know, Ang and Chang, these like guys from North Carolina, uh, who were, you know, performed at PT Barnum circuses. Uh like it, it's a weird metaphor, Siamese twins. But it, you, there is no secularism if you can't identify something in the world to call a religion and then try to map, manage, and regulate um that religion. So the 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 work that I'm doing in the book is really building on Assad as well as Hussein Ali Agrama, uh, uh, Saba Mahmoud, of uh, people who've tried to understand uh, secular modernity as really split between, on the one hand, uh, what Mahmoud calls secularism's promise of freedom, you know, that liberal constitutional states want to grant freedom of religion to citizens, and on the other hand, what what Mahmoud calls secularism's regulatory impulse. Uh, there's this other side of the state, this sort of Foucauldian, you know, go discipline, governmentality side of the state that sees religious populations that it just wants to map, manage, and regulate. Often when we think about secularism, we really only see the liberal promise of freedom. We have a hard time paying attention to this other face of the state, but arguably that other face of the state is actually more important and more pervasive for how secularism manages religion. Certainly it was, I would argue, in colonial India uh, and possibly in some ways even in post-colonial India, although that's beyond the scope of the book. The book, I should say, really ends in 1927. I like glimpse forward to several key moments, but the, story, the key story of the book stretches from the 1830s to the 1920s. So what are some, what are some um, plot points, touch points of that key story? Talk a little bit about the data and, and, and what you're looking at in the book. So the book opens, I'm just beginning all everything with the word so. The book, opened, the book opens in 1927 amid a major controversy of the late colonial moment uh, called uh, alternately the Raj Paul affair or the Rangila Rasul affair. Uh, there was a guy named Raj Paul who owned a press in Lahore that published a tract called the Rangila Rasul, uh, which could be literally translated as the colorful prophet, uh, but the word colorful in this case has a strong undertone of uh, sexual impropriety. Uh, I tend to just translate it as the the Mary prophet. It was a track making fun of the prophet Muhammad's multiple marriages uh, and the sex life of the prophet. It was a tract that feels calibrated to produce offense and indeed did produce offense amid the Lahore public uh, who mobilized to try to get the track banned banned under existing sections of the Indian Penal Code, but couldn't. Uh, ultimately, this led to the, crea the creation of a new section of the Code 295A uh, in 1927. So I, I open amid this controversy, uh, trace its eddos and crannies, and then do a zoom back, a cut back uh, to the 1830s when the when the Indian Penal Code was first drafted by a man named Thomas Babington Macaulay, uh, this arch-colonial ideologue uh, of the 1830s moment. And then I follow the code through, and in, in particular, its regulation of religion through the late 19th century, along the way, picking up the history of the Arya Samaj, uh, the Hindu reform society that ultimately in the 1920s would be behind the publication of the Rangila Rasul. So the book as a whole is trying to tell the story of legal secularism, the Indian Penal Code, as alongside of and is utterly entangled with the history of modern religion, uh, in this case, the Arya Samaj and its tracts and pamphlets.
And so during this, this journey, this, this intellectual learning, writing research journey of yours, did anything surprise you about this, your findings or what you found yourself writing? Was it, was it a case of sort of, uh, you know, uh, finding more evidence for what was suspected to be the case? Were there certain curveballs in this process for you? You know, anything remarkable in the literal sense for you in terms of what you were researching? There were so many things along the way. It's difficult to pick just one or two. I would say that one of the major adjustments I had to make relatively early on was in how I describe and think about Section 295A. This is often called a blasphemy law, even in the 1920s when the bill proposing it was called the Blasphemy Bill. But it's precisely not a blasphemy law. It's a law that was going out of its way in its moment to secularize the history of blasphemy in British common law traditions. Yeah, I had not realized how late blasphemy re remained a crime in the UK, uh, that the last man jailed for blasphemy in Britain was in 1921, uh, the ironically named John Gott, G-O-T-T, -T, you know, God in German. Uh, and the last man convicted of blasphemy in the UK was in 1977, Dennis Lemon, uh, what's known as the gay news case. Uh, and blasphemy remained a criminal offense uh, in the UK until 2008. Uh, in the 19, late 80s, early 90s, uh, after the Rushdie affair, there was an effort to broaden uh, blasphemy law in the UK to include other religions like Islam, uh, which failed, that the House of Lords doubled down and said, no, we protect only Anglican Christianity, the Church of England, that's it. So I, one of the major sort of surprises, and of course, this is at, not at all surprising at many levels, was that, I mean, India was at the forefront of the development of British secularism. Uh, the British were always more secular in the colonies than they were at home, and maybe especially in India, which they understood as a religiously plural space uh, and one uh, a space that needed to be managed in terms of religion. So the, the British Empire was devising new means of regulating religion in India that it would then import back to Britain. Uh, and so that's the specifics of this story were new and surprising to me. But the, that background condition, the British secularism, uh, Western secularism was invented in the colonies, uh, was not new to me. We, we know this already from the work of many other scholars. Perhaps uh, comment on some of the examples used in the book, whatever comes to mind in terms of, yeah, where do we see continuities in our times? You know, uh, for those who are listening who haven't read the book, who may very well decide to read the book, uh, well, could you um, could you flesh out why this isn't a particularly colonial Indic problem in terms of what's happening uh, at present? So I think the question is, what's specifically colonial about this? So no, what, no. It, 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 the question is, you you make a number of references in the book, but for those listening, why is this not? just an historical South Asian problem. Where where do we see this bubbling up? What are parallels that are that are occurring in our times and how do they map on to, to section 295A or perhaps even how do they contrast uh, there too, you know? Sure. I, I guess maybe there are two ways to answer that question. One is in terms of the cultural politics of contemporary India, and two is in terms of the broader sort of theoretical horizon of the book. I mean, in India uh, at present, as well, I would add, as in 
Pakistan, although in somewhat different form, the Pakistan Penal Code is the direct derivation of the Indian Penal Code and the laws in the Pakistan Penal Code that specifically prohibit blasphemies against the Prophet Muhammad and other entities within Islam were added in the 1980s, but very much modeled on Thomas Macaulay's Penal Code. So they're this weird hybrid of British colonial law and Islamic law. Uh, in contemporary India, uh, uh, this section, 295A, uh, is often used. I mean, indeed, the entire penal code remains the law of the land. Uh, and so the book is trying to provide an account of what happens when people in contemporary India speak in the language of the, of the Indian penal code. What happens when they speak in the language of Macaulay? Uh, the ironic result is when people are trying to speak from the position of being Hindu, let's say, or you know, being Jain or Muslim or whatever, but speaking in the language of the code, they're doing two things at once. They're they're saying we as Hindus are offended as Hindus, but then they by in saying that they've hybridized Hinduism with colonial legal secularism. In the conclusion of the book, I say that they become Macaulay's children uh, when they allege offense in the terms of the Indian Penal Code. They've entered and this kind of intimate, embodied, affective relationship with these words written. 100 years ago. Uh, that maybe tips my hand toward the uh, the broader theoretical horizon of the book, where the book is about India, but it's also uh, trying to ask a series of theoretical questions about religion and what in the book I describe as religious affect. Uh, I'm very much in conversation with affect theory, with media studies, uh, with a number of different conversations that are trying to get accounts for you know what is it to feel, what is it to feel in relation to media, be that print media or the digital? There's something weirdly both intimate and public about it at the same time, uh, that the thing, that feeling or affect, that thing that is registered sort of most intimately in the body and in uh, seemingly private spaces of reading is implicated in these public forms, uh, like reading of tracts and pamphlets and newspapers, like reading Twitter. Uh, in the, what, what happens in these spaces is intimate and public at the same time. And so the book is trying to provide one set of theoretical vocabularies or narrative techniques for describing that kind of public intimacy. Mm. Well, we, we're certainly well within the age of public outrage, manufactured or otherwise. So it's, it, there are some fascinating parallels that one might be tempted to draw from from your case studies and what's 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 happening uh, at present um you actually preempted this in your last response but what subfields does your book uh is your book in conversation with or otherwise put um what sorts of interests or scholars uh, um might your book pertain to yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's a book that I am hoping garners a number of different kinds of scholarly audiences. So it should certainly appeal to scholars of South Asian religions, um, many of whom already very aware of 295A. It should certainly appeal to historians of modern South Asia, um, as well as the anthropologists interested in public culture of modern South Asia. Uh, more broadly, uh, it should appeal to scholars interested in secularism uh, in a number of historical contexts. Uh, it should appeal to scholars interested in religious affect uh, and religious feelings, uh, emotion discourses in religion. Uh, and I think it should appeal to people interested in histories of Great media. Uh, and that's just trying to, they, that's, I'm trying to hook it to theoretical conversations that really open it out and, and show the relevance of the study of South Asia to people working in other kinds of geographic contexts. Let's just say, um, how do I put this? Let's just say you had a magic wand. Just say. 
just for kicks. Magic wand uh, or something crazy. A genie bottle. Oof. Um, what do you think? How do you think? I realize you, you know you're 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 a case sample of one, and you have a particular vocation and outlook. But what do you think? Uh, how do I phrase this? What might you, what might you like to see change about the landscape with respect to to this law or this situation? So that I would say is the policy question that I punted in writing the book, uh, uh, and that is ultimately out of respect for lawyers and policymakers uh, that uh, th to decide what policy should be or what law should be uh, is ultimately a different task than the task of historical and critical scholarship. Uh, my job is to provide an account of the history of the law, is to provide a genealogy of the law, is to observe its effects um, and its limits, uh, and not ultimately to propose, say, a shift in law. Uh, and that that's just a, a different skill set, and I respect the people who do that too much to presume. Uh, in terms of shifts that might happen in discourse around this law, uh, I think we are off. People when they critique this law are often unaware of the kinds of histories that their critiques participate in. Um, so, I mean, I came to suspect in writing the book that. Sometimes uh, contemporary Indian left critiques of 295A, when they describe it as a blasphemy law, and they're like, oh, we as India are secular, we should not have a blasphemy law. I, like, I was like, it's a, you sort of read these and you're like, wait a minute, there is a really prominent blasphemy law in South Asia that gets talked about a lot, the Pakistan Penal Code. I mean, when the Indian left is sort of disavowing 295A and calling it a blasphemy law, when it's precisely not a blasphemy law, it's like a proto hate speech law, is there like an implicit sort of we're not Pakistan uh, in that kind of critique of the law. I, I think it's just very easy and thus you meet perhaps an implicit Islamophobia and that kind of secular left critique of 295A. Uh, yeah, I just think it's so easy when we talk about religion and when we try to espouse positions that we understand as secular to put our foot in it in all kinds of ways that the history of secularism is complex. Uh, its politics are not always as savory or as clean cut as we want them to be. And those of us who position ourselves personally within secularism need to do a much better job of understanding the complexity of what secularism is and has been as a cultural form and a political form. And perhaps paying a bit of attention to the Siamese twin to which it is attached. Absolutely. Um, is this uh, clearly, clearly passionate about this topic? Um, and uh, is this work that you're continuing? You I mean, what's what, what are you working on now, if, if anything, related to this work? This is the, why otherwise? Oh. Well, I mean, I've got a number of uh, side projects I'm trying to get out the door at the moment, but the next big project, which I've barely begun work on, is still within the space of like global transnational Hinduism. You know, my, you know, my broad my scholarship as a whole thinks about modern Hinduism and modern South Asia as it connects to sort of the world stage. Uh, my first, like, Slandering the Sacred and my first book, Spiritual Despots, we're thinking about India in connection with Britain. The new book is taking a different angle uh, and is set in Los Angeles uh, in between the 1920s and the 1950s. It's uh, following the friendship between Christopher Isherwood, the British novelist, and his chain-smoking Bengali guru, uh, Swami Prabhavananda, uh, 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 to think about what the guru was doing as political form uh, in the transcolonial moment around World War II. There, you know, there needs to be at least some sort of Netflix docu-series on this chain-smoking guru. But anyhow, that's mostly, 
that sounds like fascinating work. Is there anything else about slandering the sacred that you hope to be touched on and you'd like to say when we close? Uh, no, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for yours. Thanks for being on the podcast. Of course. For those listening, we have been speaking uh, with Dr. Jay Barton Scott of the University of Toronto on um, a brand new publication called Slandering the Sacred, Blasphemy Law and Religious Affect in Colonial India. Uh, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, um, and keep contemplating the inextricability uh, between the sacred and the profane. Take care.